Today we will of course be talking about Metro 2033. To get this right out there right off the bat, yes, I played the Redux version. Um, <clears throat> I thought about trying to get a hold of the earlier version, but eh. <laughs> I mean, no, it, when this was requested, it wasn't specified. And from what I'm told, this version is a little more coherent with uh, Dying Light, I think, is the next one, which itself is going to be more coherent with Exodus, which we'll be playing when it actually comes out. I'm not sure when it comes out in relation to this video, because obviously I'm recording this in advance, but, you know, I figured that would be a simpler way to keep everything nice and contiguous. Also, I know this, this is based on the books, which are significantly darker <laughs> than the actual game is, and that kind of terrifies me, considering the game is not exactly Wine and Roses. Anywho, one of the things that uh, I want to comment on right off the bat is I keep hearing this game referred to as Russian Fallout. I myself actually used that comment when I was describing the beginnings of it to a friend of mine. But as I got more and more through the game, right about the time I got to Polis, I was like... Or Polis, excuse me. This doesn't feel like Fallout. You know what this feels like? Half-Life. The more I played this game, the more I realized that was a more apt comparison. It is essentially a linear mission-based series of events where you have the occasional chance to basically stop, buy stuff, interact with NPCs and that stuff, but there's nothing really open-world about it. It is a continuous series of events. Now, that's not a complaint, but I felt like that really helped me to understand and explain the nature of the gameplay better. It also meant that, well, kind of like in Half-Life, there were occasionally events where your your default setup would basically be reset, or you'd get equipment, or you'd get ammo, or whatever, based on a cutscene happening. A non-interactive cutscene that you're still viewing from the first person. And obviously there's RTM's own you know narrations, which help vary this up from Half-Life, because apparently you're playing a character who can actually talk. But more to the point, I really liked this. If anything, I realized that I think I wouldn't have enjoyed this game quite as much if it was truly more open world. Because when you have this kind of linear structure, I mean, I'm not against open world games, don't mistake me, obviously, I like quite a few of them. But when you have this kind of linear structure and this sort of pseudo-mission hub, it's not really a mission hub. It's more like mission, 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 hub, mission, 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 hub. So that's what I say when I mean mission hub, or... God, I'm getting all my words. I'm sorry, I'm still recovering from the whole ear thing, for those of you who remember what that's, that's about, because this was a few months ago. Point being, I like this version. It allows for a more crafted experience. You get a lot more background dialogue, a lot more interactions with NPCs. Uh, the overall level design is far superior to what I would normally see in an open world game, and I really like the way they structure this. I also have to say, in one other way, it really feels a lot more like Half-Life than it does like you know, Fallout, the specific style of horror that it's going for. In this game, atmosphere is everything. I, I, I cannot praise the atmosphere of this game enough. I'm actually surprised at how relatively old this game is, given how well-constructed it is in this exact uh, respect. The fact that the sound design was completely on point. You know, there's so many sections where I'm just like, mm, I don't know, and occasionally someone might see me, and there's this little, eh, they don't actually see me. That's you know, it's much more obvious. But it's like, ah, okay, okay. It reminded me of anything of the Dishonored series when it came to the sound design. There were a lot of good audio cues and a lot of good 
not actually silence, you know, whole sections where there's no music playing, but instead you can hear the creaking, or you can hear the creatures running around, or you can hear this kind of thrumming, or, or something relevant to wherever you are. And it added immensely to the overall atmosphere. This game just oozes atmosphere. I also like the fact that you could basically stealth your way through a huge chunk of the game. Like, there's so many enemies that I just... Knife! Knife! I found the knife to be basically my best weapon in the entire game, really. Although, uh, the Kalash was obviously nice. Probably pronouncing that wrong. But I, I'm i sorry, I'm a knife guy. This, this, I enjoy stealth gameplay, you guys know me. And I found it to be so much simpler and... Eh, more satisfying, I think, is the way I want to put that. Now, obviously, that doesn't work in all situations, especially when it comes to the damn mutants. But... For all the humanoid enemies, that was my go-to. I also like how the game basically treats its first two or three, or however you want to define that, levels as tutorials, but does what I would usually consider good gameplay design when it comes to the tutorialization. Like, right off the bat, Bourbon's like, okay, so I want to take you over here. Now, by all accounts, this is an escort mission, but Bourbon himself, well... I wasn't playing on Ranger difficulty for reference, but from what I understand, even on higher difficulties, not up, not counting Ranger, he won't die unless you really screw up. No, this isn't really a classic escort mission. It's more like he is escorting you. Not you, Artyom. You, the player, trying to get you into the understanding of how exactly certain aspects of the game work. We learn about traps, we learn about humanoid enemies, we learn about the currency and trade and economic system of the bullets, which we'll talk about later. We learn about mutants, and we learn a little bit of tidbits. In fact, we even go to the surface for the first time with Bourbon. Then Bourbon dies, and like seconds later we meet Khan. And Khan is kind of the second escort mission, the, the, the continuation of the tutorialization. Because through Khan we learn of the supernatural elements of the setting, the ghosts or uh, anomalies or whatever the hell you actually want to call them, which I will again talk about in a moment. But for all of these sections, very rarely did it feel like the game would like stop the game and be like, okay, hang on. So, you know, this is what we use as currency, and you could use, or, okay, these kind of enemies, you should shoot them in the head, because, no. Almost every one of these set pieces was a manually crafted experience, and well-crafted in, 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 in addition to that, which made it so that I felt like I was just kind of getting the hang of things naturally, without have, having the game having to pop down with a tooltip and say, did you know? Right? In fact, I'm pretty sure during one of my deaths, I actually saw a tooltip about you know, make sure to avoid the ghosts as they'll kill you. But I didn't need that because Khan himself says, you know, don't touch, don't touch the silhouettes. And I'm like, okay. That's all he has to do because I see them. And he mentions plenty of other people have also died, you know, as a result of this recurrence and blah, 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 blah. So it's good. It's good. I like it. I also like a lot of little visual flares and touches. For the most part, this wasn't a particularly gross game, which I always appreciate. There's one notable exception on that over in D6. Ugh. And, um, but I appreciate, like, the flies is, is what immediately comes to mind. You get too close to a corp and little flies start popping around on your helmet. It's like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, sometimes you look up and there's that sort of rain spackle, you know, little, little details like that are all over the place. Lots of stuff that I really enjoyed. Um, as, as weird as this is going to sound, I don't have much else to say about the gameplay. The level design is tight. The tutorialization is excellent. I suppose I should talk about the moral system. Now, I'll be honest, by what is effectively coincidence, I went into this not really knowing about the moral system or how it worked or what I should do with it or anything like that. So I didn't deliberately get any ending. Uh, for those curious, I got the uh, the good ending, however you want to think of that, where I spare the dark ones. I know that's not canon. 
which is messed up, but whatever. Anyways, but I kind of like how the moral system, with only a few exceptions, makes sense. Like, for the most part, the moral system is all about just being a decent person, trying not to massacre everyone, trying to help people out when you can, refusing payment for reward, you know, just little stuff like that that just makes sense. Some of them, I actually looked up a list after the fact, after I finished the game, right before I started recording here. Apparently strumming the guitar gets you a moral point. I, I don't even begin to understand that. But <laughs> for the most part, I found the system to be smooth and well executed, giving you the option of basically adjusting the ending to your play style. And since, and since so much of it is uh, natural stuff, the kind of things that you would naturally do, depending on how you're playing your character, I didn't really feel at any point in time like I was like, huh... I mean, I, I guess to use a parallel, I felt that certain incidents within The Witcher 3 also kind of didn't quite work for me with regards to how they affected the ending, mostly because there was such a disconnect, and there was only like five or six there. By contrast, in this game, there's like 50 or whatever, and a lot of them make a lot more sense. That's why I'm more for it. So I have a note here, which just says great atmosphere. I know I've already said that, but it really bears repeating. But what I want to talk about more than anything else is the shinies uh, versus the dirties. So... First of all, I'm going to talk about economics here for a second. I know, I know. One of the most basic principles for economic currencies is the idea of having something that has inherent value. This is one of the reasons why alcohol, cigarettes, um, certain metals, uh, cattle, you know, useful things have been used as currency throughout a huge portion of human history. Obviously, a dollar bill is completely useless in modern parlance, so that doesn't really uh, equate in the same way. It is purely currency with no inherent value. But I bring that up because if the infrastructure that allows for something such as an intangible currency system to exist, and all of that breaks down as a consequence of this nuclear war situation, it makes perfect sense that they would fall back on something closer to more tangible usefulness. And in fact, the usage of the shiny ammo, the MGR, is, per is perfectly logical because they can't make anymore. It is, in fact, a finite currency. It is so finite, in fact, that from all intents and purposes, if you think about it, it's astonishing there is any more uh, still lying around 20 years later. They must be using these things extremely sparingly. But in lore and in gameplay, the MGR is actually more useful, more damaging, more better. <laughs> more better. <laughs> better in just about every way as far as its actual usefulness as ammunition. But, of course, that's exactly why they they try to use it so sparingly, you know, use it when you really need to. Uh, in fact, point in fact, I basically didn't use any MGR throughout the entire gameplay right up until I got to uh, Polis, or Polis. God, I can never remember how they pronounce it. And right after that, um, I was like, okay, I'm going to go forward. And I was... I decided to look up a couple of things because I wanted to make sure I didn't miss it in there. And it's like, make sure you trade here because this is the last point at which you can trade. And I was like, oh, I guess I'll start using the ammo from now on. But I do like that. And this is kind of still a gameplay thing because it makes sense from a gameplay. I love the idea of forcing the player to decide if they want to trade with their currency or if they want to use their currency. It's a nice fundamental survivalist perspective. And again, it puts the choice on the player. I even like the fact that for the most you know, majority of the early part of the game, very few of the enemies you fight really need the extra damage and extra power of it. 
But by the end of the game, when you start fighting far more regular, far more difficult things, librarians, excuse me, uh, the idea of actually having MGR is much, much more useful, much, much more appealing, and the game conveniently allows you into a situation where you don't have to think about trading anymore. Now, if this was a kind of thing where we would import the save from this game into the last... I don't actually know if you could do that or not, by the way. Then it would make more sense to try and conserve some of that ammo, because then you would have more currency for the next game. But either way, I like that that option is in the player's choice. And I do like that it is a legitimately useful thing, both as a currency and as a utility. I also have to say really quick, um, I love the idea of how multiple aspects of the game, I, I kind of already mentioned this when it came to the tutorialization, but multiple aspects of the game really showcase uh, things in advance. I talked about this a little bit when it came to my System Shock 2 rumination. There are several uh, moments in the game in which you'll have someone that's just kind of there, and you're not really supposed to fight it. I mean, you can, but you're not supposed to fight it, you're not supposed to interact with it, and then you move on, right? And it's it's like a hint as to what's coming up. Probably my favorite example of that is the demon you see very, very early on with the bourbon situation. And it's like, huh. And then, of course, you actually have to fight demons far further into the game, and demons are... <sighs> demons are rough. I actually looked into this. Apparently, there's a little bit of uh, disagreement on this, but apparently demons came from tigers. Wow, is all i got to say to that. I mean, I'm, I'm used to accepting that radiation is magic, you know, fallout, but yikes. Anyways, so one of the other things I like about the, the presentation of the story is they get across the idea that this is a day-to-day -day struggle of existence. Now, there have been plenty of survivalist, post-apocalyptic, you know, doomed world kind of games over the years, but most of those don't really get across the kind of atmosphere as well as this one does. My favorite moment is actually relatively early on in the game. Uh, after you're leaving Cursed, I want to say. And just, they open the gate for you to leave and move on to your next destination. And that's it. There's no attacks, there's no nothing. But everyone is super tense, and they're like, okay, we gotta get ready. Three seconds, go, go. And they open the gate, all right, go, go, get out, get out. And then they slam the gate right close behind you. There's several other scenes that do, that accomplish the same basic thing right at the beginning when you see Hunter uh, at... Uh, Oh, God, Expedition or whatever it's called, your, your hometown. Oh, there's so many little scenes like that that help to emphasize that this mutant threat is not just a daily threat, it's an hourly threat. It's the kind of thing that has to always be a problem, is always a concern, and everyone always has to deal with it. It adds a lot of uh, atmosphere, again, like I said, but it also kind of gets across the idea of just how hand-to-mouth these people live. Or, I, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't even call it living. It's more like how hand-to-mouth these people survive. How this is a true survivalist situation. It, this is definitively post-apocalypse. In fact, if anything, I'm a little bit weirded out that it's been this way for the last 20 years. This feels like it's only been like a year, maybe two, after the bombs fell. Because everything is horrible, and in a non-stop state of horrible. This actually is one of the things that I like about this, um, as weird as that may sound. Because it adds extra weight to something that Miller says far further into the game. Basically, at the end of the game, actually, when he's seeing the immense wealth of the D6 compound. And when I say wealth, of course, I mean, you know, utility wealth. Not, not it's, There's not a bunch of gold coins lying around. It's all of the hardware, all of the, the guns, all of the ammunition, all of the vehicles. And he sees that as the possibility to retake the surface. To be able to actually live rather than just survive. And... 
the way he says that and, and the way he approaches that whole scene, that his entire speechification thing, I found myself thinking of how interesting it is within this game that so many people are reverted to what is usually what I call a survivalist mentality, and yet basically everyone involved still clings to the intangible. Now, I've talked about this concept many, many times, but, you know, the tangible versus the intangible is one of the key elements of human existence, in my opinion. The tangible is food, drink, sleep, you know, roof, shelter from, from elements, that kind of a thing, right? Tangible stuff, stuff that I literally need to continue to survive, to, to continue to be a living being. Intangible stuff is usually what pushes us further past that into the actually being truly alive, you know, survival, existence, living, right? And so intangible stuff is stuff like friendships, um, honor, uh, loyalty. All of these things are intangible concepts. They may have a tangible effect, but the concept itself is an intangible thing, unlike, say, food, right? Now, I mention this because in this society, in this, in this setting, <laughs> in this society and setting, in which people are literally hand-to-mouthing, you know, growing mushrooms and trying to scavenge meat and barely surviving and, you know, this constant struggle. Again, I love the idea that just going from point A to point B has an almost guarantee of being attacked. That's how dangerous and that's how day-to-day -day survival is horrible. And yet, despite all that, there are still people who cling to ideals and concepts. Uh, things like societal groups, things like teamwork, things like trade. The very fact that trade even exists in this kind of a setting is fascinating in its own right. But then again, trade is a little more tangible. But then we get to the concept of the intangible. Obviously, there are bandits and raiders, which would be more leaning towards the tangible side of things. And then we hear about places like Hansa or Polis. And both of these places... I'm, I give up on whatever the pronunciation of Polis is. And both of these places are places that are very strongly on the intangible side of things, uh, trying to promote people's rights to existence, uh, trying to reestablish some kind of actual societal norms. Uh, apparently, they even have running water and electricity, which is insane in this setup. But then we also see this from the other side of things, too, because there's two major ideological forces that we hear about, and we don't really encounter a lot in this game. I'm told there are more in the future games. But we, uh, we hear about the Reds and, and their ideology of, of establishing the new Soviet Union, you know. And then, of course, there's the Fourth Reich, which is interesting in its own right, since at first I was under the mistaken impression that these were literally Germans who happened to be in the area. No, 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 no. No, they're, they're, they're Russian. <laughs> they espouse that the, uh, the, the Slavic people are the true... You know, it's it's the whole racial purity thing all over again. You know, the, the, we are the true pure races, and we get little tidbits and hints of exactly how you know they think that anybody who has any kind of mutation or any physical deformity, or anybody who's the wrong height, you know, any of them, any of them are completely unacceptable. Trying to keep the bloodlines pure. This is probably the one and closest thing I could think that really uh, relates this to Fallout because these guys sound a lot like the Enclave, don't they? Specifically, the Fallout Four on uh, excuse me, excuse me, the Fallout Three Enclave to be slightly more specific there. Either way, <laughs> I find it fascinating that everyone clings to these intangible concepts and ideologies in the wake of what is such a truly survivalist circumstance. But I suppose that's one of the things that really makes these kind of stories fascinating, right? As I've said so many times, the least interesting aspect of a zombie apocalypse story is the zombies. And honestly, it's kind of the same thing here. 
It's not like the mutants are disinteresting, but at the same time, the mutants are there to be an obstacle. They're part of the terrain, basically. They are not the interesting aspects of this setting or this game for me. It's the people and the way they interact with each other. That's the fascinating part. Um, looking at my notes here. So, uh, I suppose this would be a good time to talk about the Dark Ones. Now, we don't know everything about the Dark Ones in this game, and I know they discuss the Dark Ones a little bit more and in detail in the books. I looked a little bit more into the Dark Ones to get a little bit of uh, fleshing out of that. And I'm not sure how much of this comes from this game or future games, so potential spoilers here. But we do know, even just in this game, that the Dark Ones are not inherently evil. That they are not an antagonistic force. They are simply another form of a mutant. There's been a lot of speculation I've seen on certain threads about what exactly the Dark Ones are mutated of. Maybe this is answered somewhere in the books that I'm unaware of, but I always got the really strong impression that the Dark Ones were mutated humans. That's just my impression. Ignoring the fact that obviously they have the ability to vocalize and communicate and other high intelligent things that basically none of the other mutants have, except possibly the librarians. But... um also, goddamn, those librarians. I actually managed to uh, stare down one of those, which was actually really cool. And then I screwed up and I had to kill it anyways. So I guess I didn't actually fully succeed at that. I was like, okay, okay, ah! Um, but yeah, so the uh, the Dark Ones, I, I guess what they came from isn't really that important. But what is important to me is why it is that they are so damaging to humans. We hear reports about the Dark Ones basically showing up and then the humans going nuts and just... Now, we are something of an exception, Artyom. We, we are someone of you know who actually can communicate with them without completely losing it. We actually see firsthand what happens to someone else when he is being assaulted by the same visions. And he's just, just losing it, saying, oh, the song, the beautiful song. You know, so... I get the impression that one of two things is at play here, and it could be both. Either the Dark One's mind is so alien that it's basically like getting gibberish beamed into your brain since they communicate telepathically, or it's the fact that the telepathic power itself is so overwhelming to a normal human brain, to the point where a normal human brain, again, can't process it. It's like trying to, it's, try, it's like trying to beam the thoughts into a shark's mind of having, you know, sore, sore feet. Right? Like, it's, it's, it's being told stuff that it has no basis for, no, no, uh, ability to understand or comprehend. So it's just like, ah, and it just kind of goes nuts. So, and I'm not sure what's up with the protagonist, other than the fact that, of course, he's the protagonist. So, of course, he can understand. But past that, I'm not sure, uh, everything else. What do you guys think? As ever, I would like to hear your guys' thoughts. I, I fully anticipate a few people jumping in and being like, oh, well, it's obviously this, thanks to this book. Whatever. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see going forward when we get to Metro Exodus. Speaking of which, I should take a moment and say that I really love the way they portray the, the surface. We don't see a lot of it, but every time we see it, it appears to be something that is a completely unreclamated, devastated hellscape. I also really like the, the, the mask mechanic, by the way. The fact that the mask can actually take damage and then can be destroyed and has to be replaced and all this stuff. It's just a neat little thing, and I do enjoy that addition to the gameplay. But I mention this because, again, I really feel... I, I, this is probably my biggest complaint about the story. I really feel like this game should should happen closer than 20 years to the actual time when the bombs fell. 
you know, something maybe, let's say five years, maybe ten on the outside, based on how completely devastated and the fact that the winds are still going, the fact that the weather is still recycling, all this stuff. I don't know. That's just my own impression. I suppose I'm a little bit biased, of course. It is certainly better than 200 years later. <sighs> Looking at you, Fallout 3. Anyways, one of the things that's mentioned is that the idea that these ghosts are literally the souls and spirits of the dead who are repeating their thing. Now, I've seen a few people say that maybe this is just a science fiction concept, and some people say that maybe this is a literal metaphysical concept. I'm not sure which it is, but i got to be honest, As the further I got into the game, the more I was very heavily reminded of Shadowrun. Hear me out. In Shadowrun, there's a moment in time in which the world stopped being ordinary and normal, and magic was introduced, basically. And the whole world kind of got screwed over by this event. And, you know, it led to what eventually became the Shadowrun setting. I get the impression that the bombs falling didn't just physically damage the world, metaphysically damaged the world. That so fundamentally altered the very nature of reality as to effectively introduce the concept of the metaphysical, the paranormal, the supernatural, whatever you want to call it, into the setting. The idea that this world was completely ordinary, you know, a typical real-life existence, right up until the dem devastation from the bombs, and then that just changed the rules fundamentally and completely. Now, this is something I'm okay with. As I mentioned earlier, I'm okay with the concept of what is effectively magic radiation. But I find that interesting because that adds a whole other layer to the possibility, especially of these ghosts, of the possibility that those might literally be ghosts, not just some kind of echoes, not just some kind of, you know, imprint left behind by their devastation. That could literally be the actual soul of people, which is stuck there reliving its final moments over and over, which is kind of horrifying. Now, Khan flat out says that the, the war was so devastating it destroyed heaven, hell, and purgatory, and that, you know, maybe someday we'll be able to fix this and God will come back and fix everything. I don't know if I'm willing to go quite that far. But at the same time, I am willing to entertain the idea that, for lack of a better way to put it, the afterlife or lack of afterlife, has been fundamentally altered by the war, thus leading to souls or people or entities effectively being trapped in these loops. I mean, we even see this with, uh, with the Dark One, right? Just food for thought. I only have a couple other thoughts here I want to talk about. First of all, I want to talk about Sasha. I already gave praise to the escort missions earlier when it came to Bourbon and Khan, but Sasha is my favorite escort mission by far. He's adorable, first of all. And he's very nice, and, and what's most interesting is they basically took all of the usual escort mission problems and threw them out the window, because he's just riding on your back. So you don't actually have to deal with his AI or his pathfinding. He actually won't take damage unless you, you know, kill yourself or end up dying due to damage. So you don't have to worry about that. Enemies will all focus on you, and he'll actually go out of his way to say, oh, here's an enemy, or oh, here's a thing you can interact with. So he's helpful for the whole mission. And it probably helps that when you finally turn him in and, you know, get him back to his mother, everyone's really excited and happy about that. And he's like, oh, thank God, this is such a good thing. And, of course, I turned down the reward from her. Of course I did. Why wouldn't I? Why would you take a reward from that? It's ridiculous. <laughs> I really enjoyed that section. And it helped to emphasize what I've already been talking about. The fact that this world... Like, I imagine some of my viewers are surprised by how much I enjoyed this game. Because I imagine you're thinking, well, it's all devastation and doom. Well, see, The Last of Us posited a setting in which nothing could ever get better. Like, the way they they discussed it, the way they presented it, 
it's clear that there really should be no sequel, that the world should be legitimately doomed. There's no turning back the clock. There's no saving the day. It's over. This game does more or less the exact opposite. We, we got slammed hard, and everything has been shoved down to a really, really terrible state. But there are constant moments of hope and progress and the possibility of things getting better. In fact, one of the things that's been mentioned, although it wasn't mentioned in the game, I was paying attention for this, uh, but I didn't see anything about this, is the idea that eventually the surface will become rec reclamatable, that you'll be able to actually go up topside. And I have to admit, of course I know that, because again, Metro Exodus, right? So there is hope, and more to the point, there's the possibility of hope fulfilled, like with Sasha. So I really enjoy that theme and tone going throughout the whole thing, the idea of trying to strive to betterness. Now, obviously, I suppose this is a good time to talk about the ending. So you can either kill all the Dark Ones because you don't know what's going on, and apparently that is the canon ending, which is horrible, and also the ending of the book, which this is based on, which, again, is horrible, but makes perfect sense. It is a classic example of tragic irony. These are our allies who cannot properly communicate that fact to us, so we kill them out of fear. Whereas, based on everything I've seen and all the evidence, the Dark Ones could have been fantastic, you know, allies, like I said, assistants in trying to reclaim the surface and try to make life better for people. We want peace, right? That being said, if I could talk about the gameplay really quick, the final mission uh, in, in your head, basically, as you're going through the, the mindscape, was not all that interesting to me. Uh, it got a little bit repetitive in general, uh, visually, but especially audibly, you know, oh my god. Uh, they just kept, they kept repeating themselves over and over. He will destroy us all. Oh my God. Yeah, just, just constant nonstop. Almost the exact same audio loop each time too. And it's like, okay, I get it. I get it. Please stop. Please. <laughs> but of course it makes more sense to fire the missiles with the absence of knowledge, right? That being stated, I want to talk very briefly about two other concepts of the game really quick. Sorry, I know this is a weird segue from the ending. I don't have much else to say about the ending. I suppose we'll see where this goes when we finally play Metro Exodus. First of all, I generally don't like flash-forwards as a literary concept. It can work, certainly, and it has worked. But in my experience, most of the time a flash-forward just kind of takes me out of things. Especially since half the time a flash-forward will cheat. We'll show you something and then we'll be like, oh no, that's not actually what you were seeing. And that can work, and that can not work. But I have to admit, basically starting off the game by playing what is effectively the last mission, and then jumping back to the beginning of the game, kind of pulled me out of it more than anything else. And I knew I knew it was happening going in. I knew the prologue was going to be the last mission. And it was a nice way, to, if nothing else from a gameplay perspective, it was a nice way to have you be fully powered to give you an idea of where you'll go. Now that's a good gameplay design perspective. Uh, giving the player a, a taste of what kind of options they'll have available and then resetting them to zero is actually a fairly common thing. Metroid's done this, Deus Ex has done this, you know, this is this is a normal thing. Mega Man's even done this. Uh, Mega Man X, specifically. So I like that, but again, from a storytelling perspective, the whole time I'm just like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> but I also want to talk about the biomass. Now, the D -sec D6 section is by far the most terrifying section of the game for me. You'll notice how there's hardly any corpses. Like, there's a few skeletons here or there, but there's no animals, there's no corpses, there's no nothing. There's just this mass of bio. And based on what we hear, especially about the Kremlin thing, which is mentioned in some of the side lore, 
this is something that has basically been eating and consuming others to maintain itself and has at least some form of intellect going. And it actively tries to stop you from going after the re reactor, which, given the fact that it's probably feeding off the reactor, would then make sense. It's also really, really gross. I mean, it's a biomass. What do you expect? It's basically the many, except smaller and slightly less horrifying. Less communicative, I guess is the way I'd say it. But there's several implications that this thing is psychically reaching out to people as we're going through there. What really weirds me out about this, because I did a little looking into the biomass, apparently this, and I have to say that way because this hasn't been 100% confirmed, at least not that I saw, the biomass was actually a deliberate attempt at crafting a weapon, a specific type of weapon that would kill all the people and leave all the, the terrain. I mean, that's the ultimate weapon, right? We get to get rid of the people and claim the territory for ourselves. Except it made this thing, probably out of everyone that was there, that just leads me to one really big question. What the hell is this thing doing in D6? Now, I, I am aware, thanks to reading up on this, that apparently D6 was also partially a bio-weapons uh, laboratory, in addition to being a storehouse and all that fun stuff. But the implication that I was left with was that this thing wasn't supposed to happen, and as a consequence of everything that went when the bombs fell, this kind of got loose, and that was the end for everyone who lived in this area prior to the bombs falling, which is a lovely thought. I would like it if we would actually permanently kill this thing, because it's terrifying and should never be allowed to exist, just like a Sarlacc, but that's off-topic. The other thing I want to talk about really quickly here is... One of the things that I enjoyed most about... Most of my playthrough throughout this entire game was the constant implication that we are lucky rather than super powerful. I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on, because obviously any player characters in the lower power level is going to be dependent on the skill of the player themselves. And of course, we all know I'm terrible at games forever and always. But I mention that because there's many, many circumstances, especially in cutscenes, where everything goes wrong for us, and where we just kind of stumble our way through situations. I get the very strong impression that we are basically just a fluke. Not a Superman, you know, not a, not a mega amazing awesome person, but basically someone who just happened to be in the right place at the right time repeatedly, and as a consequence, just kind of stumbled our way forward. There's something wonderfully human about that that I enjoy. In fact, if I'm being 100% blunt, this is my final parallel to the thing I started this off with, Half-Life. Because, let's be honest, that's kind of what Gordon Freeman is too, right? I mean, he's not some superhuman person, and how much of his power is reliant upon his suit and the abilities that he has around him. But he gets lucky. He just kind of happens to be the guy who kept going. And that's kind of what we are in this game. I rather enjoyed that. I'm looking forward to playing Metro Exodus at this point. I have to say I really enjoyed going through this game. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you next time.